uh, we're learning from Matthew together. We're asking the question, why does Jesus matter today? And as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we're seeing Jesus, who is the authoritative teacher. He's sitting down, his disciples come to him, and he talks to them about the law. He comes to fulfill the law. That's why he matters today. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. Some of us would think perhaps that that doesn't sound relevant to us. I hope I can meet you where you're at today. Some of us may just feel a little uncomfortable about law. Some of us in our very real lives have encountered law and relationship and where uh, law isn't something that really we want to bring into our relationships. By the time that law is involved in our relationships, we're at a point of uh, a deep pain, deep distress when, when an attorney is mediating between you and someone you once called beloved. You know that you're in a place of, of deep distress and pain. Now, if you could only imagine a poor sap who thought that that was the way relationship was supposed to be, and he tried to start out a relationship moving toward marriage like that uh, with, with legal terms and legal speak. And uh, so a guy, you could imagine, he, he puts together a, a proposal plan in his mind, and he's going to propose to his wife. And the only thing he knows is, I just don't, I don't want to break any laws against her. I'm going to try to keep the law in this relationship, and that will make her want to love me this poor guy. And so he's got a picnic spread out on the beach. It's sunset, the perfect time, a breeze rolling through and the tide rolling in and out, romantic occasion. And he turns to his beloved and he says to her, I'll fulfill my basic legal obligations as your husband. Wow. She's thinking, um... I hope there's more. I would expect nothing less. And he keeps going, though, this poor guy. And he says, I won't commit any legally punishable acts of adultery against you. And by this point, she's like, uh, she should be thinking about ways to escape, you know, right? How do I get out of here? And he's probably getting nervous, sensing the tension. And so he just goes to the baseline, the, the law that he would never cross. And he says, well, well, I won't murder you, you know? And by this point, she's running, Right? And he's like, well, you know, I'll even build fences around the top of my house so that you won't fall off of the house and I won't be guilty of manslaughter. That's how much I care about not murdering you. She's gone, right? Because this is not a declaration of love that would win anyone's hearts, and yet it is the way often that we relate to God. In the first century, Jesus' neighbors were relating to God, saying, I will keep these basic commands, and I won't go beneath these basic checklist sort of items. And so you'll have to love me. I won't murder anyone. Love me, God. Accept me on the basis of that. What they were doing was they were taking God's law and they were minimizing it, taming it to something that could be managed. Now, for some of us today, That's not the sin that we would commit. We would fall into another ditch. There's two basic ditches that Jesus addresses in this passage that we read just now. One of the ditches is that we would just dismiss the law. Now, this could be because we've uh, just experienced the law as something that's crushing. You know, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. How on earth could I begin to fulfill that checklist? I've got no chance. Jesus, why should I even try? We despair. And especially if we hear God talkers like me in the name of Jesus, putting you down and crushing you with that law. 
as though I myself could fulfill it and you couldn't. That's the way many people around the Pharisees in Jesus' day felt, the scribes and the Pharisees. Some people would dismiss the law today because they're educated in post-enlightenment institutions that say that keeping this ancient law would be passe, be primitive, and we've moved beyond that. We're, we're more sophisticated, we're more advanced and progressed than this. And we can, we can come up with our own laws, right? You do you. I'll do what I want to do, you do you. We just get along and try not to harm one another. If that's you today, I, I hope I can get in your neighborhood by the end of our time together. But in Jesus' day, the, the far more common uh, tendency among God's people, among his neighbors in first century Judea, who are a very religious people, they would tend to try to manage God. They would try to make the law less than what it was. And they would create this floor basis for their relationship with God. We're going to aim at the minimum. We're not going to break the minimum. And because we don't break the minimum, God will have to accept us. There was actually a book called The Mishnah, which compiled a bunch of rabbis and their teachings on how to keep God's laws. And it's extremely detailed, and it deals with some of the very things that Jesus addresses here. So he's addressing live issues in this coming chapter where he talks about anger, when, when he talks about lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. When he talks about these things, he's talking about live debates about how to interpret the law and apply it. And Jesus doesn't come and let the Pharisees off the hook. He actually says that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, or else you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you're like me, when you first read that, that just feels crushing. How on earth? The people who sat on the seat of Moses, who, who taught the law, these would be the people who were your, like your Sunday school teachers. They're training up all the little ones in the synagogues and the law. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Because they had made God manageable. We are just saying, great are you, Lord. God isn't manageable. The heights of his character, we can't ascend them. And if we minimize his character and minimize his law down to something manageable, we know that we've probably made a mistake. Jesus came to fulfill the law because we can't. And that's why he matters today, guys. We can't do this. We can't fulfill this law. Gordon Wenham, uh, commenting on the Old Testament law, he says, the law represents the floor below which human behavior must not sink. The ethical ceiling is as high as heaven itself. For a key principle of biblical ethics is the imitation of God. The imitation of God. Man made in God's image must act in a godlike way. He quotes Leviticus 19.2, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You wonder if that was on Jesus' mind when he says at the end of this passage in Matthew 5.48, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are unscalable heights. We can't fulfill them, but Jesus did. And it's going to show us a little bit about who he is <laughs> and what it means to follow him. But So we're going to... Park and think about these two questions together as we unpack this passage. Who does Jesus think he is to tell us what to do, to give us laws? You know, we're 21st century Americans. We don't like laws. We don't like authorities telling us what to do, right? <laughs> I think I'm right. I'm seeing people, like, skeptical of that. I mean, be honest. 
It's, it's ingrained in us. It's in our culture. Don't tell me what to do, right? Who is Jesus to tell us what to do? And what will it look like if we thought he was worthy of following? What will it look like if we do? Let's take a moment and pray, and we'll, we'll think about these things as we walk through the word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've graciously spoken. I pray that you'd help us to hear today. Law is not a word that is a friendly word to many of our ears. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and help us to hear. Uh, There was one who said that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Folks used to sing that way, say that your law was like honey in our mouths, sweet to the taste, more fine than gold. And Lord, I, I pray that we could know a little bit about what that means and experience that and taste and see it today. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So who does Jesus think he is? That's where we'll start as we pick up. In Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has come. One thing to be mindful of when you read the Gospels is we're reading a story that has already been unfolded. We're reading the story that the apostles have already written. They've already seen Jesus risen. They've already lived Matthew 28, right? And so they already know more than we know. And they know more than the people who were there on the side of the Sea of Galilee, on this large hill, this mount. They know more than they knew. When Jesus says, I have come, when you, when you read, particularly in, in John's gospel, but also throughout the other gospels, the Son of Man has come. I have come. There's this sense of, the pre-existence of Jesus that we see here. Where did Jesus come from? He's the one we find by the end of Matthew's gospel to be one who shares in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. The one whose name, singular name, were to be baptized into, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he came from the Father. He came from God. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. He is the pre-existent Son of God. That's the first thing that Matthew's signaling. He's hinting to us. Who, is G- who does Jesus think he is? He's the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth is given. He's not just authoritative in his teaching. He's even more. And we can see that with the benefit of hindsight and the incredible blessing of having the scriptures. But the people here are just astonished. And they would probably be asking the question quite literally, who do you think you are? They were astonished at his authority. Because when Jesus taught, he didn't teach like the scribes. He didn't use the rabbis and cite them, well, You know, Rabbi Shammai says, or Rabbi Hillel says, he doesn't say this. He just says, but I say to you. You've heard it said. Six times he does this. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And did you note the very first one? Jesus is quoting scripture. He's quoting Moses. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, right? Verse 21 there. He's quoting Moses, man. He is saying, but I say unto you, listen to me. I have greater authority than Moses. A greater one than Moses is here. And Jesus is speaking. Not only is he greater than Moses, he's greater than his contemporaries who minimize the laws I've said already. He's taking the law and and explaining it properly. But not only explaining it properly, he's, he's living it. Just as he said, he says, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did the whole law. He taught the whole law. I have a sidebar. I cut this in the last service uh, for time's sake, but I'm going to I'm going to go here with you all because it's a question that's a, a real question. What does this mean that not an iota, not a dot would pass away until all is accomplished? Jesus says he came to fulfill the law. Does that mean that we still today um, need to, um, you know, have the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, sewed or, or written in such a way that it's a front lid in front of our eyes? Do we have to write that on the doorposts of our house, right, do we have to not wear garments of, of mixed materials and things like that? There's a lot of laws, 613 of them. Does that mean that every single law is still in place for us today? Well, the first thing that we have to say is every one of those laws continues to be God's word, inspired to his people for that time. But what we must say is that Jesus says, not an iota, not a dot will pass until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. What does Jesus say in his dying breaths? He says, it is finished. Jesus, in his life, in his cross death, in his resurrection, has brought this new era into fulfillment. And now he is the one we listen to. And we interpret the Old Testament through the words and the ways and the life of our Savior who teaches us. We see things through him now. He's the one who says that all things are clean for us now. In Matthew 15, you can go and see a parallel passage in Mark 7, 19. All the food laws now are a thing of the past for this new moment in history. Jesus is welcoming all peoples, all nations to know him. And those cultural barriers, those ceremonial aspects of the law have been fulfilled in him. He's the final sacrifice for sins. And so we worship through his sacrifice and his blood. That's why we sing about blood. I used to be so weirded out about this that we sing about blood when I first came to church. We forget about how weird that is, guys, that we sing about how wonderful the blood of Jesus is. But then once we come to know what he's done for us and through his shed blood, he's the final sacrifice, we are safe to be with God because of him. People at the ends of the earth, Gentiles, most of us, who in this day would have thought they could never have anything to do with God and that God wouldn't want anything to do with them. Jesus came and made that possible by coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, the storied hopes of the prophets and every letter in the very spirit of the law. So, what does this mean for us today, today in the 21st century? Who does Jesus think he is? I think about leaders today and following a leader. Many of us are cynical about following leaders. We'd be cynical about following anyone. I remember when I first watched the Band of Brothers uh, series, I don't know if any of you have seen that, the very first episode, I thought it captured a great picture of a kind of leader that we might want to follow versus the kind of leaders we experience all the time, the kind of ways that laws are used against us. There's Captain Sobel, you see up there on the right. And Captain Sobel is running his men up Curahi. It's a, it's a mountain in the Appalachians in northern Georgia. And these men are preparing to go into World War II to be paratroopers. So he has them running up and down the mountain. And he just rides them. 
says, you can't do this. You're worthless. You'll never make it. And then they have another leader, a lower-ranking officer. His name's Lieutenant Winters. And Winters runs alongside them. You can do this, guys. At one point, Sobel says, do not help that man. A man has stumbled. He's falling. The men come around him and pick him up anyway. Winters runs along. He gets to the top first. He encourages the men as they turn around and go back down. There comes a point where Winters is promoted and he's in charge of the mess hall. And Sobel, being a pretty mean guy, he, it doesn't sound mean at first. He says, I want to give your men a spaghetti dinner. So he gives them a spaghetti dinner and Winters has to feed them this and lead them in feeding this. And right as they're finishing up their plates, they were so eager to eat that spaghetti and that red sauce and the meat, a really good meal. Right then, Sobel comes in and says, boots on, we're running up Kurahi. And so they're all outside, miserable. Oh, no. And Sobel rides them further. There's a hospital at the bottom. There's an ambulance waiting for you, man. You can't do it. You can go back at any time. Turn around now. You disgust me. And then Winters runs alongside, and he just starts singing. And they all sing along, and they make it to the top together and back. I I see this picture, and I see two kinds of leaders and two kinds of ways of relating to law. You know, I think when we hear about the law, we just feel like there's someone telling us, you can't do this. You have no chance. You're disgusting. And when we think about God's law, there's, there's a reality to that. We can't do this. We are unclean and filthy. But Jesus didn't come just to tell us that. He came actually to fulfill the law. He came to run alongside us and to run first. To perfectly fulfill every iota, every dot. So that we who are disgusting and who fall short, so short, we could be safe to run with him and to pursue God's heart and to know what it's like to live life to the full, the way God meant for it. Not just living at the bottom, the basic legal requirements, but chasing God's heart, becoming more like him, becoming holy like he's holy, and being free to fail, being free to fall down on the mountain because he'll pick us up and help us keep going. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He's the new Moses. He's our authoritative teacher. What does it look like, though, if we follow him? If we follow him, he gives us six examples here. We're going to look at one. If you remember last week, I said we're going to sort of just look at specific moments here in the Sermon on the Mount rather than looking at every stone along the path. We're going to look at the culminating section of his teaching here, the sixth, you've heard it said, In verse 43 and following, Jesus says, You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that is something that people did hear. They would hear it from their rabbis in Jewish culture. And in Greco-Roman culture, it was active as well. There's a gal named Teresa Morgan, who's a historian at Oxford. And she uh, dug up a proverb that was sort of the pop morality of the day among the Greeks and Romans. It goes like this, If you can't hate your enemy openly... Do it in secret, right? I think that's something that a lot of us live by still today. 
This is the wisdom of the world. Survive. Do what you have to do to get by. The ends justify the means. Love your enemies? Are you kidding me? Why waste your time, particularly in the first century, when you need daily bread just to live? Like, give your enemy your daily bread? Care for your enemy who would take that bread from you? This is something different. This is something deeper and higher and truer than the world had seen before or has seen since. Love your enemies, Jesus says. How on earth would we start to do this? Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus says, if you take a small step in following me, if you'd follow me who fulfilled the law, look to the Father. I think there's a book I read with my children. It's called Enemy Pie. And in the story, uh, there's a, a, a son, a young man, and there's a kid that moves into town, and his name's Jeremy Ross. Jeremy becomes the first and only name on the boy's enemy list in his treehouse. This is because Jeremy moved next door to uh, his friend, Stanley. He invites Stanley over to his house to jump on his trampoline, but not him. He laughs at him when he strikes out at a baseball game. He's an enemy. So he goes and talks to his dad about this. When he talks to his dad, his dad being a wise dad, he says, I know just how to get rid of enemies. And he pulls out a recipe card. And at the top it says, enemy pie. And he says, I'll show you how to get rid of an enemy, son. And so he starts baking in the kitchen and putting all the things together. And the son just spends time outside. He tries to bring gross stuff to put in the pie. And the dad says, oh, no, don't worry about it. I don't need the mud. I don't need the weeds. I don't need any of that stuff. Just let me work. I'll get, it this, I'll get this done. So the son's playing outside. And he starts to smell good smells out of the kitchen. And that doesn't make sense to him. Why would, why would he make it taste good? So he goes in and he talks to his dad about the enemy pie. And the dad explains, uh, well, if it smelled bad and tasted bad, then the enemy wouldn't eat it. The son says, oh, yeah, yeah. Dad knows what he's doing. He's going to get him. And so there comes the time when he takes the pie out, and it looks and smells delicious. And the dad tells his son what his part is going to be in making this enemy pie work. He says, there's one part of enemy pie that I can't do. In order for it to work, you need to spend a day with your enemy. Even worse, you have to be nice to him. It's not easy, but that's the only way that enemy pie can work. Are you sure you want to go through with this? By this point, the son's like, yes, of course. So the next day, he goes over and rings the doorbell and asks his enemy's mother if he could come in and play with Jeremy. Jeremy comes to the door surprised to see him, and they decide to play together. So they ride bikes Jeremy lets him jump on his trampoline, shows him how to throw a boomerang and actually make it come back. And by this point, the boy's starting to think, he's not being a very good enemy. He's he's kind of fun to be around. So by the time they get to dinner that night, and his dad is slicing up pie after they eat their mac and cheese, and he's dishing it out, the boy's starting to get really nervous. And Jeremy's lifting up pie to his mouth, and the boy says, stop, it's poison, you know? And his dad's, meanwhile, just eating it up, and he's covered with pie filling, you know? 
the boy concludes, well, he must not have really given him any pie after all. But what I see in this story is a wise father, a wise father who knew some small steps to take to get rid of enemies, actually to love them, to spend a day with them, to give them something good. And Jesus points us in this direction, didn't he? He said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes his sun rise on who? On the evil and on the good. He sends rain on, on whom? He sends rain on, on the just and on the unjust. The Lord, our heavenly father, is baking up enemy pie Goodness after goodness, every good gift comes from our heaven, heavenly Father. And he's drawing us in his kindness to repentance, to turn to him. And that's what he calls us to. What if a small step we might take, a small step in Jesus, Jesus who loved his enemies unto death, Jesus who said, while he's being crucified, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. What if in him, by his grace, responding to his mercy to us, we who are his enemies, what if we would literally bake a pie for someone who we call an enemy? You have enemies, I know you do. Some of you have been in the places like I described earlier, where a law has come between love relationship. You've been through divorce. You've been cast out of a family. You've been one who's cast someone else out of a family. You've been in a workplace situation, a situation that got ugly. You've been in a, just an ongoing uh, adversarial relationship with someone who one-ups you and makes you look bad. You've been, you know, on and on and on. You have an enemy. We have cultural enemies, people that we tell ourselves are our enemies, whether they are or they're not, whether Jesus would call them enemies, whether our Father would even call them sons and daughters. We simply would call them enemies because of whatever cultural beliefs or attitudes we've inherited or we see on the news. And Jesus invites us to love them. A cup of water. Some of us, uh, because of the, the messiness and the brokenness of the realities of this world, it may not seem feasible to give a pie to someone who we've been in a, in a true relationship of enmity and adversity with. But could we start where Jesus started and forgive them? Could you pray, God, forgive them? I forgive them. Could you relinquish your desire to see them hurt, harmed, judged? It's hard. Could you start there? And maybe in time, God would lead you a step further whether it's a pie, whether it's a note, whether it's spending a day with them and being nice to them. By grace, this is possible in Christ who fulfilled the law for us, who we're united to by faith. Jesus is our authoritative teacher and he takes us beyond the minimum, beyond just minimal law-keeping into the heart of God to show God's love to our neighbors, even our enemies.
Some of us, though, uh, we might take offense at Jesus. We might think Jesus sounds arrogant because Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not a law and some prophets. Jesus is speaking as though there is one story of the world, one story that we're a part of. He's speaking as though uh, there's a, what, what, what our neighbors would call a meta-narrative, not just my meta-narrative and your meta-narrative, but one story that we're all a part of, that we were all made in God's image, that all of us have fallen. Our first parents fell, and through them, all people have fallen, and death and sin have come into the world and separated us from God. But God has not quit on us, and he sent his son Jesus to fulfill the law for us, to set things right, not by squashing us, which he had every right to do, but by lifting us up, forgiving us, and sending Jesus to die in our place. That sounds arrogant to some of our neighbors, the particularity, the exclusiveness of this. But if I would just direct you to think about the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching today, I want you to realize this. Jesus is the only one from his time who credibly said, love your enemies. The ethic of love, this is John Dixon, he's a New Testament scholar from Australia. The ethic of love at the heart of the New Testament sounds like common sense to many today. It's what any rational person would think about the good life. But it certainly wasn't rational in the Roman world, and it hasn't been for most of the world history. Some of you neighbors you think that you would just love people out of your rationality, that it's post-enlightenment, progressive thinking, it's the result of scientific method that would lead, lead us to love neighbors. I am suggesting to you today that that is nonsense. Caring for our neighbors is not efficient. It doesn't serve in natural selection and survival of the fittest. That's for sure. Loving your neighbors leads unto your own death. And Jesus walked that out credibly before us. Could you just see that there's no arrogance here in Jesus? There's just reality, a real love that he lived out. And he's inviting you to know it, to know it yourself. It's not street smart to found hospitals to heal your enemies in wartime, but that's what Christians have done following Jesus. It's not rational to bring enemy pie to an ex-husband or an ex-wife. But this is the sort of thing that Jesus is leading us to. He's not leading us in arrogance. He's leading us in incredible humility and in real love. But if, if you're really offended at this, I think what you have to realize is that you just aren't hearing what God's saying yet. Perhaps you're unwilling to see that you need Jesus to fulfill the law. C.S. Lewis said, it is after you've realized that there's a real moral law and a power behind the law, that you've broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It's after all this, not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. You and I are wrong. We have broken God's law. We've hurt others, 
And if you can't hear that, if you can't know that, then maybe you're not ready to hear this yet. But if you know that, if, you, if that pricks your conscience, realize that there's a safe place to go with that in Jesus. You can go to him and not be afraid of him crushing you with his law. He came to fulfill it for you and to lift you up. He came that you might know what it's like to be truly human, to love even as the Father loved and be sons and daughters of our Father who loves the wicked and the good alike. All our failures have fallen on Jesus. And so in him, this is my prayer for you, Faith, and it's my prayer for neighbors as well, that through Jesus, who fulfilled the law, that we might run after him further up and further in. We're gonna fail and we're gonna fall. Even today, you're gonna fail and you're gonna fall. But Jesus will be running with you and picking you up. You can do this, keep going, and he'll give you a song to sing. Yes, it's true, you can't do this, but you're a child of God and you are loved. Keep going, keep going with me. There's great purpose in Jesus. I pray you'd see that as you see how he fulfilled the law for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus's Uh, Just every goodness to us, his kindness is what draws us to repentance. And I pray that he would draw us today. I I pray that as he pricks our consciences, as, as we know how we've failed, Lord, that we wouldn't be moved to shame and to hiding it. We wouldn't be moved to to defiance or pretending as though it weren't true. Uh, But Lord, that we would just own before you, Lord, that we need you and beg for your forgiveness. And Lord, we find you so generous and kind and merciful when we're there. I pray that you'd help us again to experience the gospel, to know how deep your love is for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.